Welcome to Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. We go behind the scenes to get the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you can become a better leader and gain fresh wisdom for both your personal and professional life. I'm your host, Allison Trebridge. And I'm your host, Caitlin Crosby-Benward. And you're in In Real Real Good Good Company. Donald Miller, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Were we on the same trip with Donald 100 years ago at Bob's cabin? No, you weren't on Mm -mm. one, right? You were on different ones. Allie, were you you on one of those? No, you invited me and I had a wedding. Biggest life Uh, regret. Biggest life regret. And then it hasn't happened in a few years. I know. Remember, we were going to do it in May. We were going to do it in May. Oh, yeah. There was going to be one. Yeah. We got killed by COVID. Side note, Bob sent me a pizza for my birthday. He called me up to wish me happy birthday. And he goes, I'm going to send you a cheese pizza. I'm like, I feel like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. It was the cutest thing. We love Bob. Number one, Bob Goff. He's, he's also here. known to send um, a box of ducklings. So I'm glad you got a pizza. Oh, he, he really does that. He'll really? send birds, send okay. birds by mail to your house. Can you, can you just share with our listeners the bumper sticker thing you did for Bob? I was telling someone um, about that the other day. The like, if you need a lawyer because birds are pooping on your car. Right. Yeah. Bob, Bob, if, if, if anybody knows who Bob Goff is, he wrote a book called Love Does. It ended up being a, a massive bestseller. Well, he put, it was his first book in a way. He, he wrote another book, but he self-published and, and didn't do much with it. But he wrote a, another book called Love Does. And in the back of the book, he put his phone number. And, you know, I knew him while he was writing the book. And I knew that he did that because he, he sent me a copy, an early copy. I said, Bob, you can't do this, you're, <laughs> you, you don't understand. Uh, this is Your phone's going to ring off the hook. I didn't realize you. that he absolutely loves that. Yeah, but he does. I said, you can't do it. And um, and so I didn't know how well the book would do. And, but I, so I just, so I was, I bought a Volkswagen camping van, a new one that really looks more like a, a utility truck than a van. <clears throat> and it has this giant white side to it. So as a practical joke, I had a giant magnet printed that said bird law in really big <laughs> letters. And then it said, can you sue a bird? I, I'm a lawyer and I know how, you know, call me. My name is Bob. And then I put his, his phone number and I just I never told him. So I just thought, Bob, Bob's just going to get calls. People wondering why and how you would sue a bird as a lawyer. 
And um, he did. He got a bunch of calls. And then and, you know, I didn't tell him I got a van. So they're like, yeah, is it got, like you're in a white van. He's like, no, I don't have a white van. Like, But then I drove it across the country. So it was like, oh, no. right, you're in Arizona. You're in Texas. You're in Louisiana. You're in, And he it freaked him out. But it was kind of fun. One of my favorites. All right. Business made simple. <laughs> if you're not suing birds, Don, why did you write business made simple? You You had done story brand before this talking about how you tell a story with your brand. How did that take you to Business Made Simple? Where did that come from? Well, I, I started my writing career as a memoirist. I wrote about seven or eight memoirs. Um, they did really well, and, and the publisher wanted more. But I, I just kind of thought, if you write your ninth memoir, you're a clinical narcissist. And <laughs> I, I'm just a regular narcissist, not a clinical narcissist. So I, I, I switched. And I had in my head, I wanted to write this marketing book on how you tell a better story as a company and how you invite customers into a story and wrote that book, honestly expected 23 people to read it. Mm. And it sold like half a million copies. So we we ended up doing sort of lectures and workshops and all this sort of stuff about how to do that. And that blew up. And so all of a sudden I had a, a company that was teaching people to do marketing, but it was a company and we had 10 employees and then 15 employees and then 30 employees. And, and I realized, I had to learn all of this other stuff about growing a company. Hmm. And um, what I realized was that growing a company isn't rocket science, but it's it's a lot of really simple things that you have to get right. And if you don't get them right, bad things are going to happen. And, um, <laughs> and here's what was fascinating to me. It's a lot of stuff that they either, one, don't teach at business school, or two, hmm. teach you at the wrong time. So by the time you need it, you've forgotten it. And so I wanted, go ahead. You mean bad things happen. <laughs> I mean, you go bankrupt. <laughs> I mean, uh, you get sued. I mean, you know, uh, you waste a lot of, uh, of uh, your precious uh, time on things that don't, don't need to happen. I think a lot of businesses try to look successful rather than actually be successful. Hmm. And that to me, and I think people who love business books and business knowledge and all that kind of stuff, they might be trying to sound smart when when actually there's some very basic fundamental principles about uh, business. And I, and I just looked around and the, the world didn't seem to know what they were. And wow. we so I, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get I'm going to write a book that I wish somebody would have handed me at 20 years old. I also had a chip on my shoulder because, you know, when I was a kid. We, we grew up really poor. We stood in line for government cheese. We, I, I was born into government projects in Houston, Texas. My mom never made uh, more than about $20,000 until she was in her 60s. And, uh, and so we were raised on, I mean, you know, my mom would sew my clothes. I mean, I, I, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and she didn't come home till about 7 p.m. from work. So we were latchkey kids. And, and because of that, my life was Mm. disorganized, disoriented, and I just never made good grades, never went off to college, watched my friends go off to college. And it was probably in my mid twenties to late twenties that I realized I was a pretty good business guy. Somebody gave me a a shot at a publishing company uh, in the warehouse. I ended up four years later being president of that company and then wrote my own books and then started my own company and was just kind of decent at it. And, and what I also saw was there's this paywall between that keeps the, the poor poor and the rich rich. And a big part of that paywall is the university system. So if, I, if they could just buy a $13 yeah. book 
And the way the book is structured, you, you read a daily entry and you get a video. So for $13, we, I think we spent a quarter million dollars on the 60 videos. So you're getting a really great return on that investment. And I think it teaches you yeah. and prepares you to be valuable inside of a business or to even grow a business probably better than what you learned in college. Now, let me, let me change that. Probably better than what you remember from going to college. And so it's two things. It's, it's an alternative business education, and it's a way to sort of reunite yourself with the fundamentals is what I was hoping to do with that book. Well, and the thing that I am so amazed by is, uh, it's funny, I was about to say it's so simple, but it, but it mm-hmm. really, it really is. It's really these distilled principles and it's so easy to read and so intuitive where as you're going through it, it's like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. And why don't they teach this in college? Like why? Well, you, I, why and I don't- think, I think you hit on it though. I think they don't teach it because it's too simple. It doesn't feel like this heavy, amazing, valuable business education. And what I had to do when I was writing the book was say, you know, I, I could get into value share and I could get into all this stuff, but they're not going to apply it. Yeah. And so yeah. I had to stop short of saying, okay, okay, you'll apply this. If you, if you read this, you'll apply this, you'll apply this, you'll apply this. And listen, you know, uh, part of it, the gift of not going to college is not knowing what you're supposed to say in order to sound smart. Yeah. I think what one of the things that business school does is teaches you to teach at business school, mm. but it doesn't it doesn't really teach you to run a business. And so I wanted yeah. it to to be. I'm not trying to be cocky here. I, the people who teach at business schools are extremely intelligent. Many of them could could be chairman of the Fed and do a great job, and I could not. <laughs> but if you want to grow a company from zero dollars to twenty, thirty, forty million with a significant profit margin and no loans from a bank, no venture capital, no private equity. That's what I did. And yeah. so you turn around and you say, okay, how did you, how did I do that? What were the steps? And that's what this book is. And hopefully people will say, well, thank God, it's actually pretty easy to understand. What they're going to find is it's actually difficult to execute, but it's really easy to understand what you're supposed to do. So uh, we are going through some of the questions in the front flap of the book, um, which really breaks it down nicely. Um, so the first question about character, what kind of person do you think succeeds in business? Well, let me explain why I started with character, because a lot of people wouldn't. They would start with the creation of a product or understanding you know, how to keep your profit margins high or how to keep overhead low. I started with character because uh, years and years ago, in order to write a different book that I never wrote, I ended up going around and spending time with some really successful people, including presidents of the United States, first ladies, members of the judiciary, NFL coaches, accomplished athletes. And I never did anything with that material until when I started writing this book, I realized, wait, these people have some characteristics in common. They have some some things, the way they see the world is really different, Uh, even though none of them were actually alike. They were all, Mm. you know, some were ethical, some were not ethical, some were hardworking, some to me seemed kind of lazy, some were creative, some were just action oriented. Uh, but they all had these 10 things in common. And so I started the book with that. And then we get into being more productive and clarifying your message and how to create a sales funnel and how to run a management and execution system, how to negotiate contracts. There's a lot of practical stuff in the book. But I started with these 10 characteristics because I realized if you don't have these, you're not going to make it. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and they're not things like integrity, although I think integrity is important. It's not on the list because I think if you don't have integrity, you just belong in prison. 
So, you know, why include that? Right. The, the right. society's going to weed you out. So the very first one was uh, of the 10 was you see yourself as an economic product on the open market, which sounds really controversial. I love that. I love that so much. I'm glad you love it because I was worried that people would be mad at me because obviously we're we're all priceless human beings and we're all in God's eyes we are in my eyes in the eyes of the people who love you. The market, however, for the market, there is a number floating above your head. Mm. And that number is $15 an hour or $30 an hour or $50 an hour. And I think what a lot of people believe is that they're born with either a low number or a high number. And what mm. I wanted to teach in the book is, in fact, you are born with a low number and you're in, you're in control of what that number is. The more skills you learn and the more practice you get and the more you can make money for a, a company that your economic value actually goes up. So, you know, if you know how to drop some french fries into grease and pull them up in 3 minutes, you're worth about 15 bucks an hour. Right. Uh if you can also though align a team around a mission, you're probably worth 30. If you can understand how to keep cash flow high and read a P&L and make decisions based on that P&L, you're probably worth 45. If you can negotiate contracts or, or be just a good negotiator, period, you're probably worth 60. And so the idea is that it, with each of the 60 entries in the book, the number above your head, if you apply it, and only if you apply it, grows. And, oh, uh, and, and I think it's, you know, people are like stocks. And I, I hate to say that, but if you invest a paycheck into a team member and they give you back a strong economic return on that paycheck, you will increase their pay because you always double down on a good stock. Right, right. And, and people say, well, Don, you're the owner of the company. You're just trying to get your, your people to work harder. No, as the owner of the company, I have to live my life this way. If somebody buys my product for 100 bucks, I better give them a, a really great return on that investment. Yeah. Uh, because that's the only way they're going to tell their friends about it or invest further later. So people are the same way. And if you want to succeed, just be a great investment. You know, and yeah. it's not just economically. If we want to succeed as friends, somebody's investing friendship in you, give them a great return. Uh, if, uh, you know, I think about this, this with Betsy all, all the time. She invested her heart in me. Right. And right. Uh, if I flirt with some other woman, uh, she made a bad investment. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And and I should have to pay for that. And the <laughs> and less people should invest in me in the future until yeah. I get things right. That's just yeah. the way the world works. And when you abide by those rules and understand them, your life goes a lot better. And when you avoid people who don't, your life goes a lot better too. Wow. Well, and there's a reason we use metaphors like spend time together. That's right. That's amazing. I never even thought about that. Right? It's so true. Our time yeah. is our time is so valuable. And and if you think of the very heart of business, it's an exchange of value. And the only reason why a consumer will give $20 to buy a product is because they believe the product will give more than $20 of value back to their life. Right. That's Yeah. And it's the I same way. True. It's the same way as an employee. If you're going to pay me $50 an hour to do something that should produce some greater value than $50 to the company. That's so, right. And, and yeah. you know, that sounds like a hopeless thought to some people until you realize the easy, easy things you can do to give people a great return on their investment. Hmm. And hopefully that's what the book uh, details. And, uh, and you know, anybody who delivers pretty much anything to my house, if they come to the door and I, we say hi to each other, I literally say, hey, 
I've got a book for you. Hold on. And I go and I get this book and I walk them back to their car because I'm thinking if somebody would have done this to me when I was delivering Chinese food in Pearland, Texas, as a 20 year old, it would have stimulated an entrepreneurial imagination about 10 years earlier than when that happened for me. Wow. Wow. Let's talk about the the messaging piece of it. So you come from a background in marketing story brand and building a story brand. So it, you have this question here, why aren't customers paying more attention? Why? Do, what do you think is kind of the core of the problem of businesses feeling like their customer doesn't understand the value they're bringing? Yeah. So after we, we get through character, we talk about personal productivity and mission statement, and then we get into how to clarify your message. And most companies' messages are completely ignored. Mm-hmm. And they're ignored because the only reason people spend money is to solve a problem. Yeah. That's it. It's the only reason people spend money. As a business owner, you need to be able to articulate very clearly what problem you solve. And you are a fantastic example of this, Al. You've done this so well with Copper. But unless you're known for solving a problem, you're going to be forgotten as a product, Mm. Uh, not as a person, but as a product. You just are. And so, you know, with giving keys, you have this problem of I need to I need to encourage somebody and I need something to help me do it. Well, that's a and I don't have anything. I can't think of anything. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that giving keys is really successful, because it's a it's a tool for solving a problem. And really, everything that's successful works that way. And so in the messaging part of the book, I I go through uh, five things you need to figure out. And one of them is you need to figure out the problem you solve. So for me, running a company and a business and a mission has been, the, the heart behind it has been kind of easy, quote unquote, but the leadership aspect has been challenging for me. So I'm curious, how do you unite a team around a mission? That's a good one. And, and um, uh, well, let me just start by saying there's always an element of chaos. You're never going to get everybody completely united. In fact, I think 20% is about the best you can do. I do. Wait, wait, wait. so much better about myself now. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think it's about 20%. I think the rest of it is a whirlwind. You're up against uh, their ideas, their creativity. You're up against what they're looking at on Instagram. You're up against the fact that you haven't talked to them in a week. You're up against the fact that you got on an airplane, you left for three days, and somebody stepped in and misaligned the company. You're, you're just always... So the, the first key to even getting to 20% is to have an extremely clear mission and repeat it over and over and over. And when you're tired of saying it, keep saying it. And it also so has to be super true. clear. So let me, uh, here's the here's a formula for a mission statement. I, I think most mission statements are garbage. They're written by lawyers. They just sound like legalese talk for shareholders. I think here, this is a good mission statement. We will accomplish X by X because of X. Interesting. Say it again. So we will accomplish X by X because of X. Mm. So, and, and you have to get really specific. And so, uh, you know, at, at our company, we will have 250,000 people in our online platform, 5,000 certified business coaches, and 5,000 certified marketing guides by December 31st of 2024, because everybody deserves the help they need growing a company. That's our mission statement. Wow. And so if you go to, if you go to any of my employees and you say, hey, what are, what are your three tactical objectives for this company? They say 250,000 people in the online platform, 5,000 certified coaches, and 2,500 certified marketing guys. That's wow. all we do. We don't do anything else. And, and the other thing is, if you say, you know, my events director the other day in our 
director's stand-up said, you know, we we turned the microphone over to her and said, Allie, what's going on? She said, well, we're putting these books into an envelope and we're putting these cards and we're sending them with a pound of coffee to all these influencers because if they talk about them, uh, the book on their Instagram, more people will hear about Business Made Simple and might sign up for our online platform. In other words, you literally have to defend yeah. everything you're doing and how it's connected to the three tactical priorities of this company. And if you wow. can't, be really careful because we don't do whatever it is you're trying to do. Well, and I love that because it's actually, it's almost like an o inverted OKR, right? So right. objectives and key results, you have the objective, which is like the inspiring motivational thing, but the key results are you actually tie a number to it. So you can look at it and say, yeah, Did because we now you have, a, yeah. And I would say, can, uh, you know, what, what would a jury say about this? So if you said, if our mission statement is we will delight and please our customers. Okay. Well, let's say, let's say you have to defend that in front of a jury. It's very wow. subjective. But if you wow. say we have to have 250,000 people in the platform, the jury says, how many people did you have in the platform? And we say 237 and they go, you didn't do it. Wow. So think about defending your mission in front of a jury. And is it going to be easy to prosecute yourself if you didn't make it? Or can you get fuzzy in your thinking and right. be a little subjective and get away with wiggling out of what you were supposed to do? So I, I really like just specific, very, very specific goals in your mission statement that can that are you either reach or you don't reach and it's concrete. Wow. It's so good too, because then it's like no matter where you are in the business, you know why you're doing what you're doing and you know the the end result. And you know, it's really great for for people's sanity and morale. Yeah. Because they they know what we're supposed to be working on. And they also know whether they're important. Because if, if you're not helping us figure out how to get to these objectives and make these things happen, you don't belong here. And so everybody's easily finding a place. Well, actually, if I work on this, this will help the objectives. And that makes me important here. Yeah. And then when you sit down, you know, we do uh, four uh, performance reviews a year with each team member. And the fourth quarter, you, your compensation is directly tied to whether or not you contributed to reaching those objectives. And so there's just no mystery about whether or not you're going to get a raise or whether or not you're doing what's right. Or It makes managing people and being managed and, uh, and contributing just a lot easier when you, when you can get really, really clear. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, I keep going back. It's so simple. We make it so complicated. We do. Yeah, I think we do. Okay. So let's talk about, in that regard productivity. So not just for yourself, like how do you get more done, but also how do you get your, how do you get your team to get more done if you're a leader? Yeah. There, there's actually two sections in the book on that. Uh, well, really three, there's personal productivity, then there's management, and then there's execution. And so we have a series of meetings every week. Uh, there is a daily standup with your department in which you go through a worksheet and the worksheet just says, what are your, what are the five critical priorities of the department? And what are the five critical priorities that you personally are working on? And every single day for a 10-minute meeting, everybody in that department stands and shares their critical priorities. Uh, so that happens every single day. Then there's a director stand-up that happens three days a week. And we roughly do the same thing to make sure that we're on track. And then there's a personal productivity planner that, that our team doesn't have to use, but we give it out for free. And it helps you organize your time so that you know you're getting things done on your, your critical priorities. It all sounds like really, it sounds like micromanaging, but the morale of our company went through the roof when we implemented this system because there was really? just no mystery 
you know, what, where people go crazy in their job is when they don't know what's expected of them and they don't know whether they're winning. Yeah. And people want to, on a scoreboard to know whether they're winning and they really do want daily feedback as to whether or not they do, they're doing it right. They also want to, they want to contribute to the conversation about what they're supposed to be doing. So in every, in every standup, there's a question that, that the director asks is, is what's holding you back or what's blocking you? And that's that that is the people in the department telling the director what they need to get out of their way. We, it, it took us six years to figure that part out. And it was literally three worksheets and daily meetings that just solved the problem. And that kind of goes back to the earlier question about leadership. How do you unite a team around a mission? And that's kind of taking that roadblock away because they can't unite around a mission if they're frustrated all the time with being confused or your leadership for not being feeling safe to voice their concerns or what's holding them back. That's right. I was in, um, Caitlin, you'll love this story. I was in a meeting with um, a C-suite of an engineering firm here in Nashville. It was a big, beautiful boardroom that looked down on Nashville. And these guys had drawn up the engineering plans for like half the sewage in the city. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they've done well. And the, the CEO said, well, we don't have a problem with our mission statement. You know, we actually did a 48-hour retreat. We all, everybody in this room went away for two days we poured our heart into this mission statement about two years ago. And I said, I said, no, <laughs> I said, no, it's, I've never seen a good one. He goes, no, ours is good. You know, I promise you. I said, okay. I, I pointed at the CFO. He, he literally said, it's painted on the outside of this wall, outside wall of this room. So our employees see it every day. And I said, okay. I, I pointed at the CFO and I said, were you at the retreat? And he said, yes. And I said, what's the mission statement? And oh, he no. didn't know. Are you serious? Yeah, because I had to. The CEO had to know. Look, no, if if you've forgotten the mission statement, you've forgotten the mission. So I know you poured a lot of your heart into writing it, but it wasn't memorable enough to actually remember. So you're you're not on a mission. You've forgotten a mission. Wow. And also, if you have to walk to a wall and read it every day to remember it, it's not memorable. I I remember there was some podcast episode of your podcast, uh, Story Brand, and you talked about. It was some dog company and you said the mission was sounded just very complicated like the abcs of the canine industry yeah yeah in the vax or something and then you're like just say the mission is helping dogs or something <laughs> i'm butchering what you said but i just love the simplicity of how you know yeah i think we're trying to sound impressive with our mission and we really if you want to sound impressive if you want to impress people sound impressive if you want to make money be clear mm. That is a good takeaway. Um, okay, speaking of being clear and being successful, um, your sales right now are killing it. So I would love for you to share with our listeners, um, how do you build a sales funnel and how do you close more sales since you are doing a lot of those things? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I grin. wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> we have an amazing sales team that taught me more about sales than uh, I could possibly teach them. So I actually went to them and said, how are you doing this? And then wrote it in the book. <laughs> Um, there's really two, two tools and uh, one, we just use a program called pipe drive, but you can use Salesforce. You really have to know at a glance, and this is really rudimentary stuff. I mean, a lot of your listeners are going to go, are you kidding me? But, but half the people don't know it. And you have to know where your, where your, uh, client is, your potential client throughout the, the, the relationship that you have with them. So they're a lead, an email address came in, then they downloaded this thing. So they're actually a warm lead. Then they had a conversation with a sales rep. Then they got a proposal and then they entered into a closing sequence. You know, so that's, that, that's the first thing is to know 
who they are and who you're talking to and where they are in a process. That needs to be organized and it takes mm. software to do that. The second thing is you actually want to do a lot of listening, you know, just as a sales technique in the course of those five or six stages, you want to be able to know uh, what their problem is. So we know our product solves a problem, but what is their specific problem? And then you want to be able to invite them into a story that has a climactic scene in it in which their problem is solved, mm. right? And you want to know what that is. So let's say I'm trying to sell playground equipment and I've got this, this line about how it's safe for all the kids and how you know it'll last forever. Well, I need to know when I look at this lead's contact information that that's not actually what they're worried about that this particular client is a church and that nobody's going to their church in the neighborhood and they want their church to, they want to let the church know that people are invited or let the community know people are invited and this is a warm place to go. So my problem that I'm going to focus on is no longer it's safe. It's this is, this is how you invite the community. Let them know that any kid can play in the playground and, and so on and so on. It's just getting really, really specific with understanding what story you're inviting each client into. Mm. From there, the book teaches you to come up with a series of talking points, just four or five talking points. And you want to state them exactly the same way pretty much every time you talk to the client so that you're inviting them into a story. I think, and this is a little strange, but I think sales... People say it's a relationship. You know, I, I do believe it's a relationship, but it's a professional relationship. Let's be really honest. Sales is a transactional relationship. Mm. I don't like it when people say sales is all about relationship, friendship, trust. It's actually not. I mean, mm. if, if you have thousands of people on your database, you can't be good friends with all of them. That's not an authentic relationship. That's the biggest fake relationship in the world. You're pretending to be friends with people in order to sell something. That's that's right. the essence of slime. And then it feels slimy. icky. It just What's feels, that? It feels slimy. Yeah, it feels slimy. It is. It feels it's icky. slimy. It's like so. If we understand, look, this is a professional transactional relationship in which they give me money to solve a problem that they would probably pay ten times as much to solve. That's a healthy relationship. And so I want to know what that problem is. And what I want to do is repeat these sound bites over and over because I think even more important than relationships. Please don't misunderstand me. I think we all need to be very good people. We need to have integrity and so on. But I think more than a, a relational exchange, sales is an exercise in memorization. Hmm. What you're trying to do as a salesperson is get this client to memorize the story that you're inviting them into. And you do that by repeating talking points in your email, in your brochure, on your website, in your, in your elevator pitch, in your sales conversations, and even at a client lunch. What that actually does, it simplifies the sales process. So, you know, there's four or five sound bites that I need to repeat with this client. You can do that with 5% of the business launch. And the rest of the time, you can talk about your kids. So it actually allows you wow. to have a much more authentic, genuine relationship with somebody. Because really what you're doing is just delivering some sound bites. And by the end of it, they'd say, you know, for some reason, I really think that the church is just going to be cold and dark until we put a freaking playground on the in the yard. And, and why did they, this, why did the pastor suddenly come up with that epiphany? It's because you repeated it 17 times. Wow. So good. So, so good. Well, in our last few minutes, one that I, I really want you to talk about before we go is one of my favorite topics, negotiations. I yeah. feel like so many people get overwhelmed by the idea of negotiating in business. 
and would love your thoughts on the the value of it and any insights that you've gained for how to be a great negotiator in the business world. Okay, I'll share one with you. Everything I learned about negotiation, I learned from a guy named John Lowry. And I took his class. He teaches uh, negotiation at Pepperdine Law. And I took his class three times. And there are, there are five really important things in the book about negotiation. But I'll share, with, I'll share the best one with you. And it's this, or the one that I like the most. It's there are two types of negotiations. There is competitive negotiations and there are cooperative negotiations. Hmm. Competitive, when you're, when you're in a competitive negotiation, you or the person that you're negotiating with believes that this negotiation has to, win, has to end in a win-lose scenario. Somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. When you're in a cooperative negotiation, the, the people, both people in the negotiation believe that we can come up with a win-win scenario. I am by nature a cooperative negotiator. I'm always looking for a win-win unless I'm with a competitive negotiator and I stop. Because if you're a, comp- if you're a cooperative negotiator and you're talking to a, 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 a competitive negotiator, you will lose the negotiation every single time. Wow. The reason is they can't stop negotiating until they know you've lost. In other words, they're not actually really looking for a win. They need you to lose. And when you lose, they feel like the negotiation is done. And you you can tell really quick which type of negotiation that you're in. If it's a win-win, stay in win-win mode. If it's a win-lose, automatically stop and become competitive. Let me give you an example. Well, uh, well, you know, I sold a piece of property, me personally, two months ago. And it's just a, a, an empty piece of property. And the guy came back to me after we agreed on our price. He said, hey, would you go half and half? Because the, 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 we're going to have to put a road that reaches the property. You want to go half and half on that. And um, I said, sure, if you want to put that in the contract, that's great. He came back to me later and he said, well, listen, we need to dig sewage to the road in order for me to develop this piece of property. I immediately realized what he was doing. He, he was trying to get me to lose. So he, he didn't think the negotiation was over until I said, hey, man, that's all I can do. Wow. And a lot of people would keep doing that. And on the 33rd step, when they're finally are making no profit in it, they say, I can't do this. And that's when the guy's going to say, okay, well, let's do the deal. So instead of the 33rd step, I did it on the second step. I said, look, if I sell this property, I'm going to have to pay a capital gains tax unless I do something with the money. And quite honestly, I don't want to figure out how to not pay a capital gains tax. So I would love to sit on the property for another five years and solve this problem later because I'm only going to make more money. If you want to get the property now, get the property now. If you don't, you're actually saving me a lot of trouble. And he immediately, he literally goes, oh, no, 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 no. And he got off the phone as quickly as he could. Because what did he realize? He realized, oh, Don is now going to lose. And that's that's all he needed to hear. And we were done. And you know what? He's happy now with the deal because he knew he got everything he could possibly get out of me. So just tell people pretty early on, you got everything you can possibly get. We're now done. And if you're with a competitive negotiator, they go, great. That was a fun negotiation. I loved it. (laughs) They don't take it personally. They don't care. <laughs> Don, it has been such a joy having you on the podcast. I love getting to talk business with you. We I love you, Don. Obsessed with the book and can't wait for everyone to read it. Thanks. Thanks so much. It was an honor to be on. Thank you for joining this episode of Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. 
Music from this episode is probably from one of my old demos. We hope you like it. (laughs) And Megan Schwindling is our producer. Thanks for joining and always remember to stay in real good company. Listener.